Let's begin with this idea, right, that everything is interesting, 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 interesting. Everything interest, is interesting where they take everyday topics and bring new light to the subject of science, 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 science. And what are our bodies made of? Well, a bunch of different molecules. So to put this in perspective, Kira and Kira. Hello again. Hello. Everything is interesting. There's so much information out there. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So here we are, sitting here. On the Earth, third planet from the sun, you know, our little blue planet, our home. And when we think about the Earth, we think of forests and oceans and koala bears and elephants, lakes and marshes. But what about the land that forms under the surface of the Earth? So, you know, what about the mountains and the canyons that define these dramatic landscapes? The the land that's underneath the koalas. Today on Everything is Interesting, we're going to explore the immense geological forces that help to shape our planet and share some of the places that you can go to see them right here in our very own national parks. Uh, so we're talking geology, which is, I guess, the study of rocks. The Earth mm-hmm. is basically just a giant hunk of rock flying through space, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, you know, it's along with Mercury and Venus and Mars. We're one of the solar system's uh, rocky planets, the terrestrial planets. But well, as you said, Jefferson, the Earth may be at its simplest just a rock. And I mean, we could contest that, I suppose. It is a rock <laughs> with a lot going on inside of it. So the surface of the Earth that we live Any, on. Anybody living in there? In the rock? Yeah, there's a lot There's a lot of science fiction that's based on the idea that if we go deep enough, if our geologists are good enough, we'll eventually find some people. And they might not look like people, but some people. There was definitely, there's a Futurama thing where there's mutants that live in our sewers. Right. Sorry, <laughs> but sorry, I don't know if it, interrupt. I mean, that's still inside the Earth's crust. Yeah, the answer, we can't give you a definitive answer for that, I'm sorry. But if you want to go, I'm sure we can arrange something. No, but I want to find out. Next week, Jefferson goes to the center of the Earth. <laughs> we <Believe> in diversity. <laughs> if there's not dinosaurs people. down there, I'm not interested. Well, okay, well, let's, let's go to the center of the Earth, so to speak, slowly. Uh, let's start with the crust, no, right? It's the outer most kind of hard rock planetary like skin you could say Um, and it's broken into these large plates and it really only makes up this tiny fraction of the earth's entire body so the innermost core of the earth is uh, about four thousand miles from the surface and it's made of primarily iron and nickel and it's incredibly hot it's like 9800 degrees fahrenheit Um, and it's completely solid due to the immense pressure found at these planetary depths surrounding the inner core is Okay, take a guess. What do you think it's called? What's surrounding the inner core, Jefferson? What's sur- uh, the uh, the outer core? Yes, oh, he's ding! so good. The outer core, so aptly named, right? Mm-hmm. It is also made so of the iron people, and nickel. The people have to hold it. There. <laughs> that's that's it true. Just a bunch of yeah. people holding it. would fly away. These, you think your job is tough? The magmen. Uh, okay, so it's the outer core is also made of iron and nickel, but here it's it's able to be in a liquid form. And then in between the outer core and the Earth's crust is what's known as the mantle. And this is sort of a sea of viscous molten rock. It's roughly 1,800 miles thick, and it makes up the largest portion of the Earth's body. Is that what makes the earthquakes? The magma? Part of it. The magma. Part no, of it. There's, there's stuff. It's actually more about the plate tectonics, which we're getting to. Mm-hmm. So it's on this sea of magma that the great plates of the Earth's crust That's where reside. the magmen get their name. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Good job. That's a teaser. We, we uh, yeah, the theory of how these pieces of crust move, sort of sinking beneath and colliding with each other, is known as plate tectonics. Which is the people who live under there moving, pushing it really hard. That's, That's right. science, right? Plate yeah. tectonics, just a bunch of people running around Mag-men. really fast. The mm-hmm. magmen underneath Mag-men. the earth. Mm-hmm. End of show, people. That's it. We're done. <laughs> Go Drop home. the mic. Thank you for listening to X-Ray. This has been science. All right. Let's 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 get back to, to the real plate tectonics here. So the idea that giant pieces of the earth's surface are sort of floating around on a sea of magma was actually a relatively recent discovery. Before that, people really did think it was small men running around underneath the earth. 
probably. Um, so man generally, ex- the man who was accepted generally as the father of plate tectonic theory, which actually originally began as, you may have heard of it, continental drift theory, it was the meteorologist named Alfred Wegener. So in his book, The Origin of Continents and Oceans, which was back in 1915, Wegener proposed that the coast of Africa and the coast of South America look like puzzle pieces, right? Which I'm sure you've noticed. Um, And he proposed that the edges of these continents lined up so well that it must indicate that there was once uh, a great ancient landmass called Pangaea. Although he didn't call it Pangaea. I think he called it Gotwana Land. I I can't. (laughs) No, there have been so many different names for the different, like, giant masses of land. I can't remember. That's right, because Pangaea wasn't a new idea. Like, the coincidental alignment of continental borders had been pointed out before, as had the discovery of identical species, both alive and fossilized, that appear on multiple continents that are separated by huge oceans. But the generally accepted theory was that the land between these continents had just simply filled up with water and then sort of sunk Atlantis style. But Wegener's theory was different. He proposed that it was geophysically impossible for land to sink because it filled up with water and instead proposed that the Earth's crust was broken into these giant plates which moved about and carried the continents with them. Um, He backed up his continental drift theory with a large array of data. Can I get a shout out to the scientific method? Oh, yeah. Data. (laughs) Empirical evidence, people. Yes. (laughs) So he demonstrated. I I like the enthusiasm. Yeah. Well, I get really excited when people talk about actual science. science. Um, So he demonstrated. The, uh, the the continents that were separated by oceans, they shared fossils of identical species. They uh, There were layers of sediment that were created by... So, so sediment will have these very specific patterns based on like what weather was happening when they formed. Um, so there was like identical layers of, of these weather pattern sediment layers um, on each coast. And then there were like continuous geological structures. So maybe you've got, you know, a mountain that's sort of, well, I mean, mountain, but if you've got some, some sort of rock formation that ends on one coast, it would be picked right back up on, on the next coast. Then during uh, the 1940s, World War II, there was an effort to map the ocean floor, most likely for military purposes. Echo sounding revealed that on the very bottom of the ocean, there were deep trenches thousands of miles long and an incredibly interesting lattice of volcanic mountain change that that wrapped all the way around the earth. Is echo sounding like sonar? Like, yes. you know, like send a ping and then you hear it back? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a way to make like a, basically a, f- a picture, like a painting. Eyes with of, your ears? Yeah, exactly. I was actually doing some research right before we came in because I think That's that it's... That's what the magmen have. It's what the magmen have. <laughs> because and it's, you, if you open your eyes in the, in the hot lava, then you're, you can't see anymore. So you have to develop the, the eyes you with the ears. You wouldn't think they would have like evolved some crazy magma they eyes. Did. Yeah, they and did. It's, it's called, called sonar. It's called <laughs> oh, sonar. I see. It's called echo. They're really strong swimmers they're, to get in the magma. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, they're like screwed. You with know, magma duck. isn't always liquid. Well. I, that's another story. <laughs> you're another saying, time. You're down there? Yeah, it's not yeah, always Yeah, just dropping knowledge up in this studio. Okay, so... Where are we? So the discovery of these underwater volcanoes was the first indication that parts of the seafloor were moving away from each other, which and that was allowing magma from the mantle to break to the surface as lava and create new layers of earth. Okay, so the cool thing about lava... Is that it's lava! Well, yes, yes, right? <laughs> yes, that is the very first cool thing about Obvious. lava. But there's another thing that's pretty neat, is that when it cools... There are magnetic particles within the melted molten rock that orient themselves to the Earth's magnetic field. So it's kind of like a compass. And after discovering these huge ranges of undersea volcanoes, geographers then aimed their instruments at the ocean floor to learn more about the magnetic particles that had been left in this, you know, uh, now cooled volcanic rock. And they discovered two pretty amazing things. So one... 
The first thing is that the Earth's northern and southern magnetic poles switch positions pretty regularly, about every quarter of a million years. Like the U.S. Senate. That's, well, hopefully it happens faster than that. <laughs> it, it, makes, it makes the seafloor appear all stripey, like if you had eyeballs that could see magnetic particles, you would see lots of stripes. And so the second thing is that based on the way these magnetical, magnetic particles, I, like magnetical. I, just, I just like to push words together. That is a cute uh, word. the mag men use. Uh, based <laughs> on the way that they're facing, the scientists could tell how old each stripe of the seafloor was. And lo and behold, the newest ground was closest to these volcano-shaped sea mountains that were found in the middle of the ocean. And as they got older, oh, I'm sorry, the stripes got older as they moved away from the volcano. So, like, as you get closer to the coastline, the the seafloor gets older. It's almost as if the continents were attached to the seafloor and that those whole land masses were moving away from each other. Okay, let's see if I get this. In the middle of the seafloor, there's a crack created by the tectonic plates. They're moving away from each other. Mm -hmm. As they pull away from each other, that creates the crack. Lava flows into those cracks, or mm -hmm, I guess mm -hmm, up mm -hmm. out of the from cracks. From the mantle. That creates a string of volcanoes. Mm -hmm. Those might, I don't know, end up looking like islands at some point, maybe. Magnetic particles <laughs> within the lava point towards the northern pole, wherever that happens to be at the time. Mm -hmm. Okay, And then they get stuck there. When the lava dries, do you say lava or lava? I'll go lava. And this proves <laughs> that the plates lava. are moving away from each other because the land seems to be what? Radiating out from the string of volcanoes? Yep, pretty much. So it's these and other discoveries that led us to the right off the top of my head. Yeah, Woo! wow, good job. Again, He's bringing learning. out third grade Jefferson. Yeah. I just, it's a shout out to third grade Jefferson. Well, it was these and other discoveries that led us boy. to the understanding of plate tectonics that we have today. So this idea that the Earth's crust is div divided into these many plates, which are in constant motion. And as the plates move apart and crash into one another, this movement forms new land and gobbles up the old, all the while driving volcanic activity and earthquakes. Earthquakes. So where the plates are moving apart, or, you know, if you want to be technical, you can call it rifting, uh, lava pours out from the Earth's mantle, it forms these volcanoes, new layers of Earth's crust, and we call this the divergent plate boundary. Rift it, rifting sounds like something that's going to get really hot at, like, the club. Yeah, it kind of does. Or like something you do on a surfboard. You're doing rifting. I'm just rifting, man. It's rifting happen. that, that narnar nar wave. It's going to start here. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so most of the examples of divergent boundaries are found in the ocean, but there are actually a few you can go and visit without the need for scuba gear. Uh, I don't know if you, you know this, but we love national parks. And so one of them, Joshua Tree State uh, Joshua Tree State Park, which is in California. We still have those. We still have national parks. For now. Yep. Is, uh, <clears throat> is an example of an active continental rift. And it's the home to like rugged mountains of twisted rock and exposed granite monoliths. And of course, Joshua trees, which are really weird and alien looking. There are also no gaps really between the plates. So each plate butts up directly to the next. So as plates rift and move apart at one end, then they are pushed closer to the plates on the other end. It is here at these convergent boundaries that the plates sort of smash together. And the results of these collisions vary. So sometimes both plates crumple like crashing cars. And when this happens, the edges of both plates sort of get pushed upwards. And then you end up with some pretty majestic mountain ranges like the Appalachians, for is example. That also like the, is that how the Rocky Mountains happened? I don't remember. I is that how the Himalayans so? happened? Yes. Those are all the mountain ranges I know. Keep going. Yeah. Well, sometimes also two plates run into each other, and, and the younger plate, which is going to be a less dense because it's newer, newer rock, um, it'll crush the other older plate like a monster truck, pretty much just plowing right over the top of the older plate. And we call these areas where one plate is being forced underneath another subduction zones. 
So the Cascadia subduction that's zone. That's what we've got. That's what we've that's got what here. We've got. The Juan yes. de Fuca plate. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Good mm-hmm. job. I don't know who Juan de Fuca was, except that he made the plate. He was a great explorer. He was a huge he plate He sunk maker. with Atlantis. He made the biggest plate. <laughs> the, <laughs> the best plate. Oh, God. Okay. The Cascadia subduction zone. Is off the western coast of North America, and it stretches six hundred ish miles from northern Vancouver <laughs> Island. I like, I like local <laughs> pride based on tectonic structures. That's uh, what Kira and Kira bring Absolutely, we got the best plates. Oh man, yeah, national plate. Okay. Um, so they've got, these six, they've got this this subduction zone. It goes from like northern Vancouver Island to about Cape Mendocino in California, and that is where the Juan de Fuca uh, oceanic plate is being crushed and bent downwards by the North American plate. And the edge of the North American plate is pushed upwards, and that's what gives us the Coast Range Mountains, which are the ones that you have to drive over to get to the coast. So as the oceanic plate continues to dive beneath the North American plate, it gets deeper within the Earth. So does it always give you mountains? It either gives you crushed kind of mountains well, or it gives you volcano kind of mountains. Mountains are, are, are the crushing mountains are the forcing the of the ones. actual yeah. plates and, and the crust upwards, whereas these volcanic mountain ranges are formed as the volcanoes themselves grow. Right, right, right. But either way, you get the mountains. If you get yeah, the if you think yeah. coming to get okay, I, I, you I, get I them either right there would, or you get them inland away. I don't know what would happen to the edge of plates if they didn't become mountains. I mean, they're not just going to melt, right? Because right. the surface yeah. of the earth, it's not hot enough to melt this this land, and so it's got to go somewhere. It's got to go, so go somewhere. Up. Yeah. So, I mean, I, time is a factor. You need enough time for it all to happen, too, because mm-hmm. geological time is immense. Mm-hmm. But, okay, so you've got this subduction zone, um, and, and since since it's not hot enough right at the actual part of the subduction zone off the coast, um, as it travels underneath the plate and gets deeper and deeper in the earth, it eventually gets to the point where volcanoes can form. It gets hot enough. And roughly 200 miles inland, voila, you have the Cascade Range, which is, you know, like Mount Hood National Forest, Silver Falls State Park, Mount Mazama, where you can see Crater Lake. So if we weren't a subduction zone, okay, if instead of doing the dive, the land diving under, it did the land crashing together and both crumpling like the tr- like the cars, mm-hmm. okay, then then our mountain range would be like closer to the coast. Is that is that where it would Gosh, be? Gosh, I don't even. I mean, where I don't does even know where, where do the plates join? I imagine is it, is the it plate, in the ocean. It's or in is the it, ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the so it'd be in the ocean. The actual subduction zone. Yeah. So the actual subduction zone is about a hundred miles off the coast, yeah. and so. So yeah, I guess I mean. So the coast range is that the same? Is that that grow up the same way as the as the the coast range? range Is so if you can imagine, I wish everyone on the radio could see my hands right now. So if you can, can can everyone see me? Get a little closer to the front. Um, If if you can imagine the oceanic plate. Uh, going underneath the the North American plate, and yes, right, it's sort of actively. curving. It's like making a C. Right. Uh, the, the letter Just C. like your hand is doing. Just like my hand. Look, yeah, everybody. Just, just as my hand, hand is thing. doing. <laughs> so the edge of the North American plate has to go somewhere. Yeah. So that's what is is going northern, going upwards towards the sky, and that's what's giving us the Cascade. Or I'm sorry, that's what's giving us the coastal range, Got it. the Cascade range. And there's a reason why there's you know a big valley like where we are in Portland, and there's. The reason why there's a big valley in between is because the edge of the plate is going upwards, giving us the coast range, but then it takes a while uh, for the subducted plate. So we got both types. Yeah. We got both beautiful. It's pretty exciting. We got the best plates. All right. Well, let's, let's talk plates. about Crater Lake a little bit because it will shed some light on how volcanoes form and stuff like that. Ah, so um, 
Crater Lake is it's appropriately named. Oh my God, can I make words because today? Because it's a crater. I went from it's having appropriately a not, named. Yeah, it's appropriately named. It's, it's in the crater of Mount Mazama. Um, that mountain was built over the last uh, four hundred thousand years by hundreds of small eruptions of magma that welled up from the Earth's mantle, and each eruption resulted in a lava flow, which slowly built up the structure of the volcano cone. And about eight thousand years ago, Mount Mazama experienced a cataclysmic eruption. The eruption began as heat from the magma chamber within the volcano, uh, as that began melting rocks that allowed trapped gases to rapidly expand and built up pressure until at last the entire chamber exploded. So you might think that the basin for the lake formed because the explosion literally blew the top off the mountain, sort of like Mount St. Helens, but that's not actually the case. Instead, as the eruption rapidly emptied the magma chamber within, the roof of the chamber lost its support structure and oh, collapsed in it on itself. It didn't blow out. It fell in. Yeah, exactly. It's an innie, not an outie. That's it's an innie. Good, yeah. This is why we keep you around. Yeah. The bowl-shaped depression. Translating English to English. <laughs> when we cut the umbilical cord in the mountain. Oh, it, no. <laughs> this bowl-shaped depression that was left by the collapse of the magma chamber is what's known as the caldera. And over the course of the next 7,000 years, rain and snow slowly filled it up with water, forming the deepest lake in the United States. So let's talk more about calderas, right? One of the best places to directly observe and the influence of volcanic activity is at the world's very first national park, Yellowstone. Is it really the first national park? I believe so. I didn't know. That's so cool. So Yellowstone... American's best idea. America's best idea. I think so. We have the best idea. Pretty good idea. Yellowstone has not one, but three calderas underneath it. Uh, They're all formed due to a gigantic chamber of magma that sits very close to the surface of the Earth in the Yellowstone area. So the first caldera formed when the magma from this chamber erupted to the surface with such speed and ferocity that much like the Crater Lake caldera, it caused the land above it to collapse back into the underground chamber as it emptied. The amount of material thrown from the Earth in this eruption is estimated to be something like 6,000 times the size of the 1980 Mount St. Helens eruption. And so the resulting caldera is So that's the Audi. That didn't just collapse no, in. No, that, that is blew a collapse out. in as well. Oh, but okay. the thing is it's not a it wasn't a mountainous. It wasn't a mountain yet. It was the magma under the ground. So it blew out of the ground and then collapsed down to kind of form a depression in the land. Got it. So the second and third calderas formed over the next two million years. We, we got a text in that the Crater Lake should be called Caldera Lake. Inappropriately named. Good, good. That's a nice job, caller. Um, that's true. There were no there were no impacts that created it. Do you guys know that I have an inability to remember where I was reading? So does that make it Just more kidding, helpful I'm when I interrupt? Just kidding, I'm making this up as I go along. Does it mean that you want me to <laughs> It makes good radio, right? Just interject more frequently and more randomly? I'm, I'm in. We okay. talk about the magmen. So <laughs> let's talk about the magmen. Mm-hmm. So uh, these three calderas underneath Yellowstone, they overlap each other and span this enormous area. And so simply speaking, the entire Yellowstone Park is one giant active supervolcano. So the subsurface magma chamber we mentioned earlier is what feeds this supervolcano. And in place, in places, it brings molten rock within a few miles of the surface. So in 2015, researchers discovered evidence of a second, even deeper chamber of magma. And it's uh, significantly larger. It holds enough magma to fill the Grand Canyon 11 times over. Pretty dramatic. Mm-hmm. So if you visit the park today, you can actually witness firsthand the many ways the magma, that magma so close to the surface of the earth continues to define this as a very unique landscape. It is the magma that provides the heat to create the vast hydrothermal system that drives, you know, the famous hot springs, the mud pots, and the steam vents of Yellowstone. So, okay, close your eyes and imagine. 
Snow and rain from the surrounding... He's closing his eyes. I love this. Snow and rain from the surrounding mountains provides cold water that percolates down through the countless layers of permeable rock bed of the Yellowstone Plateau. When the cold water gets close to the magma chamber, the temperature of the water quickly rises to over 400 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, this is well above the boiling point of water, and in most cases, it would trigger its conversion from a liquid state directly to a vapor. But the pressure exerted at these depths by the water above and the earth above keeps the superheated water in its liquid state. So driven by convection, which remember is the movement of a liquid based on its temperature, the more buoyant superheated water makes its way up and back to the surface through these cracks and crevices in the lava rock, and they emerge on the surface as hot springs and pools. And as it moves through the porous rock, uh, the water dissolves minerals like silica, which then hardens into this great hydrothermal plumbing system. So it's great. I mean, it really looks like a plumbing system, except the water built it itself. And there's these cone-shaped silica structures that emerge on the surface, like the one where Old Faithful erupts. Go look at a picture if you don't know what I'm talking about. And it acts like a nozzle on a hose, which directs water in a powerful jet stream into the air. Of course, the movement of the tectonic plates and volcanic activity are not the only things that define the land, yeah? Like, I don't know what, water and ice and other things, those create, that's like canyons, maybe? Yes, yes. Well, like, I kind of feel like rock, paper, scissors should really be more like rock, paper, water, because uh, water totally beats water. rock. Because paper just takes do a, a damn long, thing long to rock. time. That's right, but water does, and at least a really large amount of water. So towards the end of the Ice Age, ice sheets covered most of Canada, and a large chunk of one of these sheets formed a massive ice dam that allowed a lake that was 600 cubic miles of water to form in uh, this area of Idaho and Montana. Picture, that's enough water to fill a lake that's one mile high, one mile wide, and stretches from Portland to San Francisco. So eventually, as the ice melted in the dam, the water was able to break through, and it caused the most massive flood in history. The lake then refilled over time, and broke, and flooded again over 100 more times over the course of three millennia. And it was these floods that carved out one of Oregon's most incredible places, right in our backyard, the Columbia the River Gorge. Gorge. Yeah, that's the Missoula Flood. I-84. So, okay, so now we've been talking about all of these geological forces that sort of shape our land, make these beautiful places. So we should probably take a minute for our science advocacy end and talk about some of the things going on that affect our national parks. Yeah, so how can we protect our national parks? Um, so there's some legislation going on right now that concern our national parks. You want to talk yeah, about it Yeah, I guess this um, representative from Arizona named Paul Gosar has just last week introduced a House Joint Resolution Number 46, which seeks to roll back regulations known as the 9B rules. Have you heard of this, Jefferson? Roughly. Roughly. So the 9B rules, um, it took Ob the Obama administration something like seven years to get these into place because they met a lot of opposition. But basically, they are to safeguard national parks from na uh, private oil and gas development. Because private companies can legally drill for oil inside national parks mm -hmm. that are considered split estate. Federal government owns and manages the land, but a private party owns the mineral rights below the surface. Uh, and the question is, should there be limits on those? The Obama administration, yes, there should be more limits. And, of course, the oil and gas industry, which now includes the Secretary of State of the United States, says, well, maybe fewer limits. Right. I, I mean, I think <laughs> it's pretty why obvious that regulation would be very important when it comes to this because you need to have a lot of input from you know the scientific community on like where you're going to drill, how much you're going to drill, exactly. where are you going to pave the roads right, that exactly. get to the drilling, how is that going to affect the ecosystems. And the 9B rules. I mean, it's not just about where and who can drill. It's about what do we do if there's a leak or a spill? Uh, you know, can we, what about if there's a disruption to habitats, which I mean, you know, our natural parks, our national parks are very important for, uh, you know, uh, habitats. Right. Uh, Leaks and spills can be disastrous to environments as we 
we well know from past experiences. And before we pass the 9B rules, which actually just happened at the end of last year, um, if there was any sort of leak or spill or that are happening in national parks, essentially the, the company that was drilling, they have about a $2,000 cap on on paying to um, for reformations. And then it came down to the taxpayers, which is ridiculous because if you, you know, if you have 150 uh, oil wells in one national park like they do in Kentucky, then that can be millions of dollars of, uh, you know, repairs that can happen if an oil spill happens. And the taxpayers... Polluters were, pay is one of the most important principles yes. of environmental policy there yes, is. Absolutely. And, and I, to our Republican friends, would ask, please maintain polluters pay the principle because you don't want as a taxpayer to pay for it. And you're still going to want some of this stuff to exist. Right, yeah, right. it's very important so to this, hold these people accountable. Yeah, this this House Joint um, Proposition was just, just introduced uh, into the House. So it has to pass the House, the Senate, and then, you know, the, the President to be made into law. So pay attention to this one. Do some research on the bill. If you end up feeling strongly about keeping regulations on companies that are drilling in national parks, call your delegates, Merkley, Wyden, Blumenauer, you know, um, ask them to represent you. Yeah, it, and so basically you'd be saying keep the 9B rules in place. This is Regulation 46 that wants to reverse the, the 9B rules. Yeah. Our personal opinion is that we should definitely keep these 9B rules, um, you know, whatever I you will, may think. I will be voting no. Well, if I, if I was in the Senate, I would be voting no on Regulation 46. Yeah. And, you know, like callbacks and stuff like that, getting a hold of your senators really can have a difference. There was this bill that was introduced by uh, Republican Jason Chavitz. I'm not sure exactly when, but um, he received, what was it? What was the bill for? To sell off federal lands? Yeah. So there's there's something like several million acres of federal land, especially in, on uh, the west side of the U.S. And this is really important land. I mean, it's this is where cattle graze. This is where people hunt. This is where people camp. This is, I mean, this you know, it's it's all of our our um, and the backlash worked. You got lots yeah, of backlash yeah, environmentalists, yeah. farmers, hunters, mm-hmm. and we, uh, rescinded the bill last week. Yeah. Exactly. So Which it can't is, happen. So you know, because the person who introduces the bill has the power to also say never mind and pull it. So you know. Just saying, yes. we can have an effect, we can have an impact so, if we So want keep to. being an advocate. Keep calling your, your uh, senators and your representatives. Yeah. And that's all we got for you today. Thanks for having <laughs> us. You want to talk more you about know, lava? <laughs> everything, lava. Everything is interesting. Mm-hmm. We know. Thank you, Jefferson. <laughs> we feel that way, too. You're listening to KXRY Portland, 107.1, 91.1 FM, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm.